0: I wanted to try crowdfunding for myself and I did. And it was the most horrific 30 days of my life pretty much. And I, I promised because I like taking people that are in my community along for the ride anyway, because that's the kind of collaborative human I am. I promised in my crowdfunding campaign that whatever I learned, I was going to write a book and write a guide to what I did so that other people could could learn it as well so that's the iteration of that welcome to the female entrepreneur musician podcast with Bree Noble
1: Hey, this is Brie Noble. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. And speaking of all of that, I wanted to let you know that we just reopened the Female Musician Academy. We have had it closed for a while, and I decided I wanted to open it up on a monthly membership so more people can get in and learn all the details on how to do what I'm just talking about, growing your audience, how to get people to love your music and become super fans. There's a lot of different steps along the way on how to do that, how to set up all your players platforms, how to get yourself booked, how to connect with your audience once you've made those fans and, you know, just so many things that we can talk about in how to improve your music career. And that's what we do in the Female Musician Academy, as well as having an amazing community of artists that support each other. So you never feel isolated and alone like many artists have told me that they do. We have monthly Q&A calls where you can ask any questions that you have and I will answer you live on video. Um, and we're going to have experts, all kinds of amazing stuff going on in the Academy. So go to female musicianacademy.com. We are currently open, but if you're hearing this later on, like in a future month, we do close the Academy and we reopen it um, periodically throughout the year. And I haven't decided exactly when we're going to reopen yet. Probably the next time will be in 2017. So, if it's not open and you get there, go and get on the waiting list and we'll keep in touch with you and let you know when it's open again and you can join. So after that being said, I am so excited to have our guest today. I played a replay interview with her a couple of years ago when we very first started this podcast, an interview that she did on the Brassy Broadcast, and um I was always planning on doing an interview with her directly, but since that interview with Jen from the Brassy Broadcast was so good, I had it just replayed on our show and knowing that I would be doing an interview with Ariel Hyatt later. And now we are finally to that point where I did this interview with her and it was fantastic. I'm just so excited that she was able to be on our show and she is talking about her new book called Crowd Start that's coming out very soon. It's in um, You can get it on pre-order now at arielhyatt.com. And as she says, how you find her website is Little Mermaid Hotel, Ariel Hyatt. So that's how you spell it. That's how you remember her name and um you can go there and grab your co- you pre-order your copy of her new book that is coming out very soon all about crowdfunding so we're going to be talking today about crowdfunding she actually did a crowdfunding for her own program and and her book so what's cool is she actually went through the process and was able to use real-time experiences to tell you how things went tell you what she would have done differently, and give you a whole plan of attack on crowdfunding, which is the best part about this book, other than the fact that she tells you from real experiences and lessons learned. She also gives you like an exact template of what you can do and how you can do it in what order to have a successful crowdfunding campaign. So go check out arielhyatt.com and check out her book, Crowdstart. And I am so excited to bring this interview to you so here is some information about Ariel Hyatt. Ariel Hyatt has been a fierce entrepreneur for 20 years and runs Cyber PR, a dynamic social media and content strategy company based in New York City. Her agency places their clients on blogs and podcasts, establishes their online brands, and coaches them to create authentic relationships with their fans. She has spoken in 12 countries and is the author of four books on social media for artists. Two of which have hit number one on Amazon. Her latest book, *Crowd Start*, comes out October twenty-fifth. Here is my interview with Ariel Hyatt. So that's a little bit about Ariel Hyatt. So Ariel, is there anything that's not in your, you know, four-sentence bio? You can't put much in there about you personally that you want people to know. Maybe something a little bit different or interesting.
0: Um, I collect vintage lunchboxes from the
1: eighties. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> What's your favorite one?
0: Oh, that's like Sophie's Choice, but I am going to go with The Muppet Show because that was the lunchbox
1: that I had. I totally had that one. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I I, I loved The Muppets. I think I even had those um like an you know an animal uh, stuffed animal and you know and then i had my lunch box and i was very into the muppets yeah there i'm showing my age yes yes we both are i <laughs> do <laughs> awesome i love that answer so i want to know and i don't actually know this about you wh- what got you interested in music from the beginning how did you end up working in music
0: this is a story that i've always struggled with telling because of the shame involved um but i'll uh, you know i think every time i put out a book it's about And I feel like many artists listening to this probably feel the same way about putting out albums or EPs or any of your art. You feel like you're just exposing a little bit more of yourself. You know, the joke that I've always said about how I got into the music business was that I dated a bass player in college, but that's actually not true. Um, What's true is I was dyslexic um, and I was diagnosed as dyslexic in second grade, which is about when a lot of people that are dyslexic find out. And normally it happens because you are not keeping up with your classmates with reading or math and your parents get this phone call. And, you know, this was in the seventies. So now they deal with this in a much more effective way. But back in the seventies, I was going to, I'm born and raised in New York city. So I was going to a private elite school in Manhattan and my parents got the phone call that I was not keeping up with the kids in my class and they were throwing me out of the school. And they said, well, she's obviously very smart, but she's not learning at the clip that the rest of the students are learning and we can't have them be held back. So my parents were in deep distress um, and they were looking for solutions. And they took me to several different tutors. And very luckily for me, I, they found a tutor who was brilliant at looking at how kids learn and finding the thing that they were good at. And it turned out the thing that I was very good at, I couldn't read. I didn't understand left from right. It was very frustrating to, you know, try to catch up. But the thing that I could do seamlessly was sing If I could hear one melody with lyrics, I could sing it back. I could memorize that way. And so I, she began teaching me everything with songs. So math was put to different songs and, um, mnemonic devices for learning left and right were put to singing. And I, literally got through school by teaching myself songs for everything. And I actually still sing many of them in my head when I need to do my times tables, but that really bonded me to, to music. And so music really saved me. And then, um, in eighth grade, I crashed a party at this guy's house from Dalton and um this guy his name is Tony Sachs and you can find him at the Huffington Post he is the lead cocktail blogger at the HuffPo and he's still a very dear friend of mine and Tony Sachs was a total music nerd i mean his bedroom was like floor to ceiling albums And he, I I led a very interesting New York City life. My parents were artists in New York City and my dad's a filmmaker and Tony's mom was a copywriter and he lived in this great old rambling apartment on the Upper East Side. And so his bedroom was full of records and we used to sit, um, sit on his bed and he would just play me old Rolling Stones and Clash records and he turned me on to, oh gosh, so many incredible things. Um, and we're still really dear friends to this day. And Tony ended up owning a record store. That was his job after he graduated college and I worked for him. So so I think that's how I got into music. It was the combination of music being the thing that helped me organize all the things in my head that made no sense mixed with just learning about music. And obviously growing up in New York city, I had a lot of freedom. I could go to shows from a young age. There were all ages shows at CBGB's and the Saint and the Ritz. And the night I graduated high school, I saw the stray cats play the Ritz. Um, So I was deeply connected to the live music experience uh, from my teenage years.
1: And then, and then that just continued all the way through. So I am so jealous because I think about all these people that grew up in New York like you and you can just go out and go to these shows that are now considered like epic, you know, at at CBGBs and all the stuff that was going on. And, you know, I lived in total suburbia and my parents didn't introduced me to any kind of music except Christian music. And I didn't go to any concerts and stuff. So I think you're really lucky for having that kind of experience and, you know, just getting to immerse yourself in music from an early age.
0: Well, it's funny. My parents only listened to classical music and opera. So I had to definitely do a lot of self-discovery, but you know, once I did discover, it was so exciting because, because everything was there. It was very cool.
1: Oh yeah. Major access. So how did you move from that love of music into wanting to do PR? And did you originally focus on PR and then decide to marry that with your love of music or did it all come together? So this is the chapter of
0: the story where the lesson is when your mother is a career coach, uh, you can, you can actually get, uh, you can get pushed into, or, or in my case, embrace what your career might be from an early age. So my mom could see that I was very good at communicating. And um, she, when I was in high school, uh, we had a very dear family friend and my, and he was, he was a publicist and he was a publicist. He was actually not a publicist. He was running a big PR firm in New York city. And he was a very, I mean, he's passed away now. He died of AIDS and he was my mentor and he was one of the most beautiful people I've ever known in my life. He was, um, he was in his thirties and I was in high school, so he was way younger than my parents and he was sort of exactly between the ages of me and my parents and he used to take me out. And he used to go out with my parents and we had very separate relationships, which was very special and cool. And my mom um, said to me, you know, do you think maybe you might enjoy going to see what Robert does? And Robert worked at a top fashion PR firm. It was called at the time Keeble, Cavaco and Duca. It's now called KCD. And I was interested in fashion and I thought, you know, as any 16, 17 year old would think that that would be a really fun industry. And so the, the summer before I went off to college, I started interning at Keeble and it was an incredible experience it, it was a top firm. They were representing, uh, Versace. This was way before he died and Calvin Klein and Anna Sui and some other really amazing designers. And that is where I learned about what PR is, the process and how, how it all goes together and, and the meticulous attention to detail that's necessary if you're going to work at that level. And, um, so I started interning and I'll never forget. We had a big event that, that all the interns had to go to and we had to get to, to a department store at Henry Bendel's beautiful department store on, in the fifties on fifth Avenue at six in the morning to set up for this big perfume launch. And I got there and the directive was, tie bows on all the tablecloths. So, you know, each tablecloth had 10 bows going around the bottom of the table. There is a point to this story. Um, <laughs> and I I went around and tied all the bows. And then the head of the agency arrived at 730 in her Chanel suit with her pearls and her perfect hair and her purse and her kitten heels looking like she just stepped out of, you know, a movie in the Hamptons. And she looked at all the tablecloths and she said, no, this is absolutely wrong. And I watched this incredible woman, her name is Julie Mannion, she still works in PR today, and she got on her hands and knees and she retied every single bow through the whole store because Anita Gattal, who was the perfume company, was not going to walk in and see anything less than perfect. And so that was my introduction to PR and what it actually takes. And I went back and interned um, every single summer. And I, I spent one summer in London working at a sister firm, which it, it turns out that that sister firm is the firm that the television show and movie Ab Absolutely Fabulous, was based on. And it was um, a firm called Lynn Franks Limited it was the most awful experience of my life. I hated it. Um, Everyone there was, uh, every woman was catty. Every man was awful. Um, They don't really like young Americans or they certainly didn't back then. And I had a really tough summer trying to understand the whole culture of the hierarchy of Um, plantagenous bloodlines in England. So that was really, really brutal on me. But anyway, the moral of the story is from a young age, I really understood PR and what it took to do it. And then when I got to college, I really lost interest in fashion. And I realized that the fashion industry, like the music industry, means that you have to want to eat, breathe, sleep, live and die fashion, just like you have to be with music to succeed. And I wasn't that passionate about fashion. And what I found was I, that was how I felt about music. So I decided that
1: music was going to be my path. And that's sort of how it all began. Mm, I love, I love, I'm so glad that you figured that out. You know, so many people go full bore into a career and then realize after a year or two, I hate this, I hate this fashion thing, you know? And so you're lucky that that happened then. So did you, did you model your business off of people that you saw doing PR? Because I felt like when I first came across your business, cyber PR, I hadn't seen much out there like it, you know? had you modeled it off, you know, really old school PR and then kind of made your own twist on it? Or did you just just say, there's nobody doing this. I want to do this.
0: No. So for the first, so I I worked for a record label and I worked for a radio station and I worked for a concert promoter. So that was, you know, my first, two years out of college. And then, um, I got fired from my job at a promotions company. And by that time I had left New York, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and there were no, there were no jobs. Boulder is very different now, but this was, you know, 1996. And so there I was in Boulder, I had worked at the only record label there was to work at in town and the only concert promoter there was to work at in town. And I, I decided um, I either had to put my tail between my legs and come back to New York and move in with my parents or figure out how to do something. And, you know, I had learned so much about PR from, I was the PR director for the concert promotions company. And I worked in the PR department at the label as well as all over, because it was a small label that I just gave it a go. So um, I started as a traditional firm, all the usual things that you did back in the nineties. I mean, this was like, Before my primary communication device was a fax modem. If any of you are old enough. Oh Lord. Uh Uh-huh. So I had um, 300 names in my fax modem and that's how we communicated. And I would send endless faxes to all the journalists at the newspapers, to the radio stations, to the television. And, um, And it was writing press releases. I spent hours and hours and hours at the paper warehouses looking at which envelope looks pretty with which press release and which paper clip am I going to put? And, you know, I, by the time I was no longer a traditional publicist, my database had logged 17,000 packages had gone out with CDs. And um, so I was traditional PR all the way. And it was, mm. it was the old school, call the journalist, pitch, leave a thousand messages a day, And, um, at that point, very few people even had email. I I had a, I had a website for my company because some young dude walked into my office one day and said, I think you should have a website. And I thought, well, what the hell is that? And he said, well, I'll get you, I'll give you one for free. I'm studying web design. So that's how my website started, RELpublicity.com. Um, Mm -hmm. and I named my company after myself because none of the men at the record label ever, never listened to me. So I thought, well, when I, when I have a shot to do this on my own, I'm going to put my name on it. So REL Publicity, um, very creatively named, uh, clicked along for 10 years as a traditional firm from, from 96 to 2006. And I started feeling the pain that we all started feeling um, around then. But really when I started, when I had the major revelation was all of the newspaper journalists started losing their jobs. And if they weren't losing their jobs, I would get them on the phone and say, I have this indie band coming to your town, because at the time I was working a ton of touring artists. And they would say, I'm sorry, I'm interviewing Elton John this week, or I'm interviewing Bruce Springsteen. And I thought to myself, well, how is that possible? Your circulation is like 3,000. And what was happening was the newspapers were closing. There were fewer and fewer outlets. Mm. And I could see that I was the canary in the coal mine with all these independent artists that were either on no label or a tiny label with no major affiliates. I I had no major cookies to dangle in front of a journalist like, hey, if you interview this little tiny artist, I'll get you tickets to see Jane's Addiction, like all of the labels and big publicists were doing. And I thought, I better get a solution here. And it was really frustrating until one day my mother sent me an email from her AOL account to mine, and it was a mortgage email. And she said, honey, I just got this great email. You should reconsider, you know, remortgaging because I had just bought my first apartment. And I looked at that and it was it was spam. And a, mm. a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, if my mother, who is a brilliant strategist who owns a business and his career, could be taken by a spam email, there's got to be something here. And I took myself on a two-year journey to internet marketing conferences and I learned from the dudes that literally their job was to spam and scam people. And I went to I went to Phoenix, I went to, um, I think I was, I I mean, I went to like 15 different places to these giant rooms filled mostly with guys in dirty t-shirts. And every time there would be a break, I would sit next to some schlubby dude who would say, I just made my first million doing email spam. And I couldn't believe it. And this was during the time when Napster was taking over. People were very upset about mp3.com. All of a sudden, artists were, you know, seeing their intellectual property um, shift, and that was very upsetting. And the labels were, you know, fighting Napster, Napster bad, all that time. And I looked at all this email marketing stuff, and I thought if these guys are making a million dollars and I have a stable of artists that know nothing about newsletters. I mean, my mind blew when I learned that they knew how to track open rates. I mean, these are all things we Mm, totally- Yeah, take for granted. Yeah, we think like, oh, MailChimp or Constant Contact, get on Reverb. But I mean, this was like totally innovative at the time. And I just kept returning from these conferences and going, okay, what can I teach my artists here? What can we learn here? And I started writing. It wasn't even called blogging then. I was writing, you know, an e-zine and I was sending out my e-zine trying to teach artists about, okay, you need a email newsletter. You need your own e-zine, guys. And, you know, you need to have a website and. And this was just when CD Baby was coming up. So, you know, it was really all in its infancy. So I was an early adopter because I realized that there was no other solution for my artists. And then September 11 hit and seemingly overnight, the entire world changed. And all of a sudden for about two months aside from calling all the journalists in every city and state and crying on the phone because they couldn't believe what happened and I couldn't believe what happened and no one could believe what happened, I I noticed they all started really losing their jobs. Or the, mm-hmm. the AP wire was taking over all of those columns and calendar listings and feature placements that I was getting. And I, I got a second hit and realized I better figure out, Something else. And that's when I got into
1: web rings. And um, oh my and, gosh, I hadn't thought about web rings forever.
0: List serves. <laughs> and I started in conjunction with offering my clients, you know, all the BS things that a publicist needs to offer, which at the time was Rolling Stone and spin and vibe. And definitely we're going to try to get you there, which they never had a shot at in the first place. But every artist wanted, of course, to know that if you were going to hire a publicist, they were going to mail your package to Rolling Stone. And I would say, but I'm also going to try these, you know, list serves. And they would go, well, that's stupid. That's a waste. And But I persevered. Um, And then here's the real, first I told you I I was a dyslexic. Now I'm going to tell you um, I was internet dating because I was living in New York city and I was 30 years old. And what was I supposed to do? Go stand in a sports bar to try to meet someone. So I was internet dating and a light went off and I went, this is so cool. This internet dating thing is great. Like I can see when this person checked out my profile and I can see who matches me. And I was going out on a lot of not so great dates, but anyway, the thing that was cool was the whole, from a computer perspective, I was like, this is really interesting. And I hired a programmer and I said, can you build me a website that works like an internet dating site that connects these webzine, ezine, fanzine, listserv dudes to my bands? If I put meta tags on my bands that said these bands have a female or there's... um uh, heavy guitar or it's prog rock or it's um, jazz. Could we tag all of these websites so that the computer could generate for me a list of potential matches and then serve all of the people at the live 365 radio stations and at the listservs and now, and the webzines, a profile that I created. Um, and cyber PR was born out of out of that. So I made a giant investment in a platform that could do PR while, while I did other things. And that's, that's the iteration of cyber PR. And that's the system we still use today. Although the world has changed 20 times since, and now we have to hand pitch everyone and we don't do the automatic matching, but we still use the cyber PR system, which has been upgraded. Thank goodness many times.
1: <laughs> That's so cool. I love that you were even targeting like Live 365. I mean, women, women of substance started actually in 2001. I know when I realized I know. that you could you could do that, and I was like, I could have my own radio station. Like I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And and you know to think that you know we were I don't know how many people were doing it back then and aren't doing it now, but probably most people, but we actually started back then and are still doing it now. But obviously you have to be so innovative and, you know, move forward all the time. And I'm sure that's why you are getting into crowdfunding because you saw the serious potential of that probably quite a while ago. How did you kind of start to get interested in crowdfunding?
0: It was amazing. So by the time we were in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, I had I was really writing seriously and had this easing and I had over ten thousand musicians on my list. It was really growing and building, which was very cool because I studied, you know, how to build an easing. And then I started um I self published my little book, Music Success in, in nine weeks. Um and I you know, that was um that was amazing. That was a really incredible journey. I just wanted to help more people. And I was asked to, to speak on, on a plat, on a, you know, an internet, not even an internet. It was like a day for independent, independent musicians to come. I don't even remember exactly where, but I spoke with, um, I spoke with Brian, who was the founder. Please forgive me. I need to actually Google Artist Share. His company was Artist Share, and he was, and he's credited. If you look him up on, um, on Wikipedia, you will find that it was the very, very early in the crowdfunding world. And Brian C- Camillo was his is his name. He was the company founder, and um, he founded Artist Share in 2000. So this was about 2007, 2008, and he was speaking on a panel and I was listening to him speak about what, what crowdfunding was and what artist share did. And I, it was amazing. I I was fascinated by what he was saying. And I actually didn't even understand what he was saying. I was, and I pulled him aside after and I was like, can you explain this? I don't understand. Is this, and he kept trying to explain it. And it was really I felt like my artists felt when I was trying to explain, you know, listservs and webzines and open rates. And I was like, what? Um, And so I became interested, but I didn't really get it until a couple of my artists started um, using his platform. And that's when I realized, Oh, this is really fascinated. Um, Fascinating. And, And so more of my artists, obviously fewer record deals going around album sales, CD sales were, were not going as well because of all the rampant stealing of music online. And, and I started seeing a few of my clients were doing crowdfunding and just naturally because we were serving them in the PR world, they would start asking, oh, can you mention this in in the virtual press kit that you're building for us? Can you, when you're pitching us, can you say that we just did a crowdfunding campaign and so it started entering my, my, my daily conversation. And um, then of course, I think it was around, I don't even know what year Kickstarter happened, but Kickstarter came and Indiegogo came and then everybody started coming fast and furious. And I actually introduced the founder of Indiegogo to the founder of Pledge Music that happened in my house. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I was really interested in that stuff from early on. And, um, It was in 2013 that I, I had coached enough people through crowdfunding and I had built this large, you know, following and I had my Twitter feed and been writing all these articles and I had self-published three books. Actually, yeah, Music Success in Nine Weeks had then gone into a second printing and I self-published The Musician's Guide to Facebook and Twitter. And I decided I wanted to try crowdfunding for myself. And I did, and it was the most horrific 30 days of my life, pretty much. And I, I promised because I like taking people that are in my community along for the ride anyway, because that's the kind of collaborative human I am. I promised in my crowdfunding campaign that whatever I learned, I was going to write a book and write a guide to what I did so that other people could, could learn it as well.
1: So that's the iteration of that. I love how the crowdfunding campaign that you did, it's, it's very meta because you raised money to write the book about the crowdfunding campaign that you use to write the book. You know what I mean? So I think that's really, really fun. Um, so the book that is coming out very soon, it's not just like, a, an overview or, a you know, a bird's eye view. It is like, you're in the trenches, you went through all this crap, and you learned so many lessons from it. And now we are benefiting from that in your book, which I think is great. I was wondering, there's a section in there that I love this, the title of the section, and I want you to expand on what this means. You say your campaign is about the journey, not the destination. What do you mean by that?
0: This is, you know, a quote that you'll probably see if you go into any kind of um, gift shop (laughs) or if you like inspirational boards on Pinterest like I do, you know, life is a journey, not the destination, right? And uh, um, that is the thing, obviously, you know, you do your crowdfunding campaign for the main reason is you want money. You're doing it to raise money, to pay for something, a dream, an album, uh, go on tour, whatever it is, it's something. But the thing that you learn when you go through the process is there's all of these people that you might not even have known existed who are your champions and they come to light when you do your crowdfunding campaign, um, And the champions, and I talk about this throughout my book, the champions that, you know, anyone who's ever had a wedding or had a baby or had a tragedy in their lives, like a parent dying or a medical thing where you've been incapacitated and you need someone to come and help you, you learn these lessons about people that you thought were your best friends. They might not be able to show up in the way that you had expected or, you know, people that this is, this is the part that I'm getting to people that are tertiary or not your best friends or friends of friends. Sometimes they show up, you know, they're the ones that come to the hospital or they're the ones that show up with a casserole or they're the ones that say, happy to babysit your kids. If you need, you know, to take a shower for 10 minutes or whatever. Um, this is what happens in crowdfunding that you think like, Oh, this colleague or this friend or this aunt is going to be the one that gives me all the all the money. And then you find out like, it's someone that has been reading your blog or following you on Twitter, or maybe it's just been on your newsletter. And so that's the journey part. It's that there's all these people that you didn't realize. My house burned down in a fire. And I talk about this in my book. And in the days after that all happened, you know, I called all my best friends and one of them had a kid and couldn't come and one of them had allergies and couldn't possibly be, be near all that burned up smell. And, you know, it was like, Oh my gosh, like, okay. And then a friend who I called brought literally a, distant acquaintance, like someone that I had sort of spent like an hour with in college. And this man showed up at my house with rubber gloves and a mask and he scrubbed, you know, all the remnants of my apartment and he packed them with love and helped me move them. And I was like looking at this guy going, this is the journey. And that is, that is what will happen in your crowdfunding campaign. In my crowdfunding campaign, my highest donor, she gave me $7,500 on New Year's Eve. Literally, it was December 31st. I was standing in a grocery store shopping to buy a New Year's Eve uh, dinner with friends. and My my cell phone rang. It was a woman named Rachel Bagby. She said, hi, I'm Rachel Bagby. And I've been on your mailing list uh, for years. And I just so admire you. And I would like to buy the seven thousand five hundred dollar um, level on on your crowdfunding campaign, but it's too much money and Rocket Hub won't process it. Can you take my credit card? And I was literally standing in a grocery store, like jumping up and down, going, What? Oh my God. Ah! You know, it was amazing. It was like better than winning the lottery. Um, and there it was. I was processing her credit card on my mobile phone at, you know, six PM on New Year's Eve and it was amazing. Rachel still works with me to this day. We, you know, she bought the premier uh, level of my campaign. So we did PR for her and helped her with social media and marketing and it was branding and coaching. And she did a VIP day with me and she bought everything I had to offer. It was awesome. So that's the journey, right? There's, there's these people that you won't even know were out there. And if you do your crowdfunding campaign, right, it doesn't matter if there's one Rachel Bagby or a hundred, those are people that can help sustain you because they become your super fans. You can read all these articles about, you know, where are your super fans? Your crowdfunding campaign will make them show up for you. And that's very exciting.
1: And not only that, but you know, sometimes, like you said, people are following you for years. They've gotten so much from what you've done and they've never, for whatever reason, had the opportunity to give back to you for that. And here was her opportunity. And I think she probably was so happy that you gave her that chance to do it. Precisely. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't give people the opportunity to reciprocate, reciprocate, you know, for what they've been feeling all this time, so that's, what, that's another thing that I think is so great about crowdfunding. But I thought this was interesting in your book that it basically says that if campaigns that get 30% through the campaign or you know, funded in the first week are much more likely to get, go all the way. Why do you think that is? Seth Godin said it really eloquently, which is very simple. Nobody
0: likes a loser. right? So, I mean, it's almost like the, it's like the A&R world and the record business, right? Like, well, I don't know. Does he like it? I don't know. Does she like it? I mean, it's different now, but back in the day, you know, from my early days, no one wanted to take a risk on the new band because we didn't really know if they liked it. Right. Um, And it's true. Like early adoption is not in our nature, right? We're, we're pack animals, No offense, I mean, you know how like when you walk down the street when there's a new trend, or you're in the mall, or wherever you go when you're out and about, and you see like a new trend, like a tube top or UGGs, and you go, Ugh, that's awful! What the heck is she wearing? I would never wear that. And then you kind of see it more and see it more and see it more, and all of a sudden you're wearing a tube top and UGGs, and it feels normal to you. Um, That is kind of like crowdfunding. The first people are really taking a risk on you and they're donating to something that says, you know, $0. And so once people log onto your page and they see $1,000 or whatever it is, 30%, it, it's much more likely that they're going to reach into their pockets.
1: Yeah. Social proof is so important. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. And it's true. We do, we do tend to like go, Hmm, does that person, li- I don't want to feel stupid if I like it and no one else is liking it. It's, it's kind of silly. And So another thing that relates to that is, you know, how important you say in the book, having video is in a crowd campaign. And I think it's probably partly because there's so much more connection there. Um, And also people need to be able to see, you know, what you can do. I've had this experience where people will come to me and say, I want you to support this crowdfunding campaign. And they'll have a video where they're talking about their music, but they're not showing anything about like what they can do at this point. I don't even know if they can Mm -hmm. sing. And so, you know, what do you think is important to put in that video? Because for me, I, I wrote back to her and I said, well, how do I, I don't know anything about your music from this video. You're just talking about it. How would I know if I wanted to support you or not? And she didn't, she's like, but I haven't created it yet. How can I, and I'm like, put something raw on there. So what do you think about the video? Oh,
0: the video stats are very interesting. So there's a lot of stats throughout this book because I didn't want to just be like, here's what I did and I'm awesome and I raised money and you can too. I wanted to do a little bit of science behind uh, behind social media, how to grow it, how to get your tribe, how to identify them. And then there's a lot of raw stats throughout the book. And the first one I'll say is that campaigns that include videos raise 115% more than campaigns without them. So that's huge. yeah, wow. it's, it's weird. But then there's another really strange statistic, which is a lot of people don't even watch the whole video like a tremendous amount of people do not watch the video. They just um, like to see that the video is actually there. Um, so they might not even watch it, but to, to see that it's there, it makes it feel more serious, which is absolutely bizarre if you think about it. But so obviously you need to create your video. Um, you know, I say in the book, doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. You just want to make sure that you've kept your crowd in mind keep it less than three minutes long. I mean, I would say keep it, if you can keep it to 90 seconds. Um, Obviously you want to be very careful that your call to action is clear, that you are asking people for money. You are asking them to absolutely um, contribute to your campaign and you're not being, you know, um, unclear about that you are asking for money that is the point of this um the other thing you want to do is if you've got some really cool offers you might absolutely want to share them and and you know do a little selling about what they're going to get so this is is very important as well and you know i hate being on video like i truly truly hate it i i if you look at go back and look at my rocket hub i'm actually crying in my video cause I was so stressed out about it. Um, <laughs> so, um, you want a video, you want it to answer what is in it for me, the the old WIFM marketing. You want to address what your funders might be thinking head on. So that's really important too. Like if you are perceived as a successful musician or a successful label or a successful human, you might want to say, Hey, I know y'all think I have a lot of money, but here's the truth about how expensive it is to tour, record, live life. I worked for a very famous... Actually, she's the daughter of two very famous people, and I helped her with her crowdfunding campaign. And we were talking it through when it was time to make the video, and I said, you know what? People know your parents are rich and famous, and the first thing they're going to think is, well, why can't you just go to her parents? Let's talk about that in your video. And so that was our way of doing that. Obviously, just like you said, you want to have a graphical representation of your offerings if you can. Um, And then I would say one of the most important things before you really get that video out there is pre-screen it. Send it to three or four or five people and ask, is this clear? Do you know what I'm asking for? Does this compel you? One of my best friends after my crowdfunding campaign was almost over called me and said, I don't understand what the heck you're saying in your video. And I was like, uh, oops, too late now. You know, so again, I learned so many lessons as I went through, show it to five people. And is this moving? Is this touching? Is this inspiring? Do you care? Do you want to reach into your pocket? Do I look like a jerk? You know, these are all very important things to know. Um, Also, if you're a musician and you're asking other artists and musicians, audio quality is something that musicians tend to get really persnickety about. So you might even want to look at that too.
1: Do you think it's important for them to put a little bit of their music in there? Or are they really only sending this to fans that would already know their music?
0: I mean, intro and outro, you should definitely put a little bit of music. Of course, if you're making a musical project, that makes sense.
1: I agree. And I've been surprised by the ones that I've seen that people have come to me and I'm like, this tells me nothing about your music. (laughs) So I, I do think that that's important. So I am curious, being that you're in PR, do you think it's important to get PR for your crowdfunding campaign like an actual hire someone to help you with it? Or can you do that on your own?
0: So that's what part of this book addresses. I am... I'm kind of a hater about hiring a publicist for a crowdfunding campaign because mostly you're raising money probably because you don't have a lot of money um, left over. So I don't know why you would then spend it on a publicist. And there's another sort of scourge that goes on. As soon as you sign up to do a crowdfunding campaign, all of a sudden, all of these crowdfunding campaign PR specialists crawl out of the woodwork and start contacting Mm you. Um, Don't fall for that there's no sex in the champagne room. Literally, it's not going to get you anywhere. So I would say do your own PR. I outline how to do that in the book. I also think that, and I talk about like, what is a real PR worthy campaign versus what isn't. And as much as your project might be very near and dear and um, important to you, that does
1: not make it newsworthy. Um, Yeah. I totally agreed with with what you said in the book. And the way I think about it too, is if you're going to invest in PR, it seems like it makes more sense to invest in PR before you ever start your crowdfunding campaign to build your fan base and your audience and your mailing list and these people that you can already connect with and engage with. And then you can go to them directly and ask them to contribute to the campaign. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. And and, you know, look, if you're only looking to raise $5,000, you don't even need that. You just need to study how to build your newsletter list is, is really the key. Um, so... I think that there's a huge lie that's told in the music business, which is that like the minute you record anything, you need a publicist. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell you from talking to thousands of musicians that have been told this or think this, or think that a publicist is a magical Santa in the sky um, that's going to do something fantastic. It's, it's not necessarily true if you're not ready work on getting fans first, work on getting you know, a hundred people on your newsletter list, at least work on 20 people coming to your shows. Do that first. If you can't do that, you don't have music that is publicizable. And I hate to say that. Um, I talked to a woman who was literally hysterically crying on my phone last week. And she's like, I've been doing this for 10 years and I don't have a single fan. And it was horrible. You know, she's looks beautiful and she's very smart and educated and, you know, I listened to her music and she had hired all these expensive, fancy producers, and no one has told her, like, maybe what you're doing isn't resonating with people, and maybe that's where you need to start. You can't add a lot of people to your team if you don't have, you know, let's go back to Seth Godin, right? Is it remarkable? if i say hey brie check out this artist and you are not interested that's not remarkable if you don't if you don't pass it on to the next person or you don't feel it's worthy mm-hmm. that's a big problem you know so i think that's another thing that we need to really ask ourselves as artists as creators is it remarkable and if it's not don't try to publicize it and and Uh, Yeah, I so agree with
1: that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, I get a lot of, um, how do I say this haters of sites like music x-ray and sonic bids and broad jam and places like that, where you, you know, you pay a little money to put your music out there and then people review it. And to me, that is like a gift. I mean, the amount of money that you have to pay for that is teeny compared to what you would spend on doing a, a big campaign for something that wasn't ready. You know, why not use those resources where people like myself that have reviewed hundreds and thousands of songs are there to help you and say, no, this is not ready. And then, you know, you can spend your money on trying to fix it or, you know, make another plan. But why, you know, why go and spend $3,000, $5,000 on a PR campaign when you don't even know if what you have is ready for the market or not?
0: Totally. And I mean, that's the other thing. 99% of all publicists are liars. Um, and it's not, that's not fair. We're programmed to just do like, okay, I've got something. I will publicize it now. Here I go. Watch me, you know, and that's really, really, um, it's harder and harder to do with things like hype machine and Spotify and no live 365 anymore. There's not uh, passionate people blogging about prog rock. I mean, there was back in the day, there were hundreds, if not thousands of tiny little pockets, but that's not what's trendy right now. And it's harder and harder to get anything done. Um, And I think that's another thing that artists don't know. They think like, oh, a publicist has some sort of magic database of endless amounts of opportunities for me. And, and we don't, um, you, you have to make music that matches with what those trends are. And I, I am not by any means saying you should do this. I'm just saying that if you are making chill wave or EDM, it is much easier for me to do my job than if you're making like singer songwriter music that sounds really old school, which there, of course, is room in the marketplace. There's just not room in the music blogosphere necessarily in the way there used to be. So hiring a publicist is never the the right first step finding your first 1000 true fans or 100 true fans that's the first step and that's the work
1: yeah and i and i think too with with finding a publisher publicist when you're ready. I think you should see what clients they take on and see if you fit with those. And if you think those clients are quality, because I personally deal with a lot of publicists and I have the ones that I know are always going to send me something good. And then I have the other ones that I know just take whoever is going to pay them. And I stop reading their email, you know. So make sure you check out that person. And obviously, Ariel, everything she sends me, it might not be right for my station, but it's a certain quality. So make sure if you're gonna work with somebody that you've checked them out and not just that, oh, they are a publicist, therefore they're magic. <sighs> Just had to say that one. Um, There is so much more we could talk about, about crowdfunding, but oh my goodness. I mean, it's already, we've already been on the phone for an hour. I can't believe it. I feel like I could talk to you all day about so many subjects, but I just want to encourage everybody here to go and get Ariel's book. And the one thing that really struck me about this book is that she just doesn't do an overview and statistics and kind of generalize she gets so specific. She gets down and dirty with exactly, you know, your campaign plan, what you need to have before you start, what what you need to do day by day in a 30-day campaign to be successful because she went through it. And like she said, it was the most hellish 30 days of her life. And, you know, if you go through something like that, you certainly learned a lot and she can pass all of that on to you and help, you know, how to organize yourself and not, you know, not have to have a a frustrating, obviously she had a very successful campaign, but you know, now she can use everything that she's learned to make it a little bit easier on you guys. So this is a gift, this book, um, crowd, start, I really want you to go and find this book. So uh, let them know how they can get it.
0: So um, you can find a free chapter, which you can download on my brand spanking new website. It's, it's very hard to remember. It's my name, Arielle Hyatt, little mermaid hotel.com. And, um, and it's a r i e l h y a t t dot com, and you'll see there's a free chapter. There is a pre-order link if you'd like to pre-order the book, either a hand-signed personal galley copy from me, I'll mail it to you, or you can get um, you can get the digital version through through the Amazon um, and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses. I'm going to be doing a mini sprint course and I'm going to be doing some cool giveaways. There's also a video course called social media tune up that you'll get as well, um, which will help you get ready for your crowdfunding campaign. So I've, I've incentivized you to buy it. The street date is October 25th. Um, but if you get it before that at arielhyatt.com,
1: or if you just want to check out a free chapter, you can grab it there. So awesome. thanks so much for thanks so much Ariel for you know hanging out with me and talking about all things music and crowdfunding and just letting us into you know your your world and your journey. It's always so helpful to hear what people have been through that you know everybody perceives, as successful, but like, how did you get there? You know, how did, how did, what did you go through to get here? And we've all gone through stuff. And so, you know, just so our listeners know that like, we don't just jump into this from the beginning. I loved hearing the stories about how you learned from email spammers. That's just so funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can learn, you can learn so much from the good and the bad, right? That's so true. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And everybody go out and go to arielhyatt.com and grab her book. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and Academy.com. with editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.